all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We're going to be taking your calls during this hour about any kind of health care question or maybe it's a comment that you'd like to make. You can reach us today by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can always send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. And if you miss something in the program, I would encourage you to go to mpbonline.org and search for our archived uh, programs. Uh, We usually get them up within about a day. Uh, you just search for Southern Remedy or any other MPB-produced uh, program. You can find it there at mpbonline.org. Well, a little bit of a chilly uh, setback here to all this nice weather we've been having. I had to pull a couple of plants in. Uh, hope you did, too, and remembered about a couple of things. Looks like one more night tonight and then back to sort of uh, not quite the typical spring weather, but at least a little bit warmer than it has been but just beautiful uh, up until uh up until day it's not too cold out there so i uh, hope everybody is uh is taking advantage of that and getting out maybe starting some new habits that will impact your health positively with maybe it's walking outside or participating in a new activity this is the time to do it so uh, don't uh, hesitate from doing that kevin you you had said you had a question this morning, Kevin Farrell, our producer, he's he's uh, rarely heard, but when he is, he speaks profound words and is doing all kinds of things to uh, to make me look better. I wouldn't say good, but better or sound better at least. Uh, can't make me look better on the radio. Um, but uh, Kevin, you got a question this morning? Whoops, can't hear you. I threw you off with my with my accolades there. Still can't hear you. Okay, we'll we'll keep going. Maybe we can get Kevin. We even drop our own people sometimes, by not by our own fault. <laughs> um, so vaccines still going on. Lots of pushes to do that. A lot of people would, um, you know, would will question. You know, well, are, aren't we doing good? If I have it, well, we really need the whole population. And unfortunately, we're starting to see that younger age range to be the people who are unfortunately being in the hospital and getting COVID right now. And I just remember that if even if you're younger and you're listening to this program or you know somebody in your family who's younger, they may be okay if they get COVID, but they can sure spread it to somebody else. And the longer this virus spreads worldwide, uh, both here in the States and, and elsewhere, the more chances it has to mutate 
And the, some of those mutations in the future are probably going to be uh, not as impacted by our vaccinations as they have. So that's that's one of those things people are like, well, well I'm immunized. Isn't that OK? Um, it, it may, Yeah, it is great. It is great for you. But if we have other people who are not immunized and the virus continues to replicate to travel from person to person, the more copies it makes of itself, the more chance it is of it mutating. And some of those mutations may not be uh, the, our vaccines that we currently have that, that are, are effective may not be as effective. So important thing to go ahead and get immunized. You can uh, do that down to about age 16 now and probably in the next couple of months, a little bit lower than that. All right. All yeah. right. You know, Dr. Jimmy, I did the radio equivalent of, of you having that nice introduction to me. And if we were on stage, I would have just tripped coming out from behind the curtain there. <laughs> um, but, uh, it happens. It I, happens to the best of <laughs> I've seen an ad on TV for a new pain relief medication that touts that it has both acetaminophen and ibuprofen in it. And so a two-part question First, do those medicines attack your pain in different ways? And secondly, do you think there is an advantage to having something that has both of them in it? Yeah, and, and combination pain medications are not something that's new. I mean, a lot of companies will market that in different ways and, you know, say, hey, we've got some that's a combination or two or three different things, but that's been around for a good while. So, you know, just because it's a pain medication – uh, doesn't mean it acts the same way. So the, the two most common categories were sort of the Tylenol and the NSAIDs. And Tylenol, um, it really affects pain centrally uh, in the way that our brain um, processes pain. Uh, it is a fairly uh, well-tolerated medication. The only, you know, really, when you start talking about pain medications, you need to think about taking it appropriately taking it for uh, for a pain that uh, don't take it too long for pain. You know, if you're eating them like candy, no matter what class it is, you probably need to see a doctor to help figure out why you're having the pain and if that's appropriate. Biggest thing with Tylenol is you can have toxicity at higher levels of it. So uh, there's, a you know, particularly with kids being younger, usually it's you have to have lower doses for, for younger individuals. So you need to pay attention to those labels. Or if you're older, even if you're an adult, uh, you really need to pay attention to that because in, in high doses, um, Tylenol or acetaminophen uh, is the, the generic name for it, can harm your liver. And if you have liver conditions already, you probably should stay away from that. That's probably on the list of medications that your physician or uh, has uh, told you to stay away from. Now, the NSAIDs are things like that's non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. So they're not steroids. Those can be uh, useful in pain in some situations, but they have a lot of side effects. But non-steroidals uh, are usually things like ibuprofen, uh, Advil, Aleve. Uh, or their generics. Uh, so if it says ibuprofen in there in the list of ingredients, that's an NSAID. And they really act peripherally. They also decrease inflammation peripherally uh, and not necessarily in the brain uh, alone. So uh, you're really hitting two different pathways there. And some people will swear by one or the other. You know, a lot of people who have osteoarthritis type pain, pain in their joints or muscles, they'll say, you know, Tylenol doesn't really work for me. For that type of pain, I like to take a leave or ibuprofen for that. 
Um, and a combination can help. You don't necessarily need a combination. Some other combinations have other things in it. For instance, if it's a migraine medication, sometimes they will have aspirin in there and Tylenol and maybe even a little bit of caffeine because all three of those things can be used as sort of a concoction to uh, arrest a migraine uh, when you have it. But uh, the NSAIDs, like acetaminophen, do have some side effects if you take them uh, in combination with things that decrease the natural lining of your stomach or it increases the acid in your stomach. Or if you take them over time, that can lead to some bleeding in your GI tract, um, and particularly if you smoke and if you already have problems there. Uh, and then in some instances, they may interfere with blood clotting uh, in some mild ways. And uh, so you need to pay attention to that. Another time period to pay attention to pain medications is around surgery. If you're going to have surgery, make sure you're, you're talking to people about it. And, uh, you, you know, probably the, the, other, the other old, old category is, is aspirin. Uh, so aspirin has been used a long time. Uh, you know, the bark of the willow tree was very good to Native Americans and others around the world for, for other species. They used to chew on it. And then they isolated the compound and produced aspirin. Aspirin can have some similar side effects as the NSAIDs do on your, the lining of your stomach, so they can lead to ulcers and sometimes excess bleeding. Um, and they uh, act not only for pain relief and as an anti-inflammatory, they inhibit platelet function. So they make platelets uh, less sticky, and platelets are the component of blood that is produced to plug holes if you have those, like if you have a cut. But um, if you have certain conditions, you may be on a lower dose of aspirin, that sort of baby aspirin dose, which is not necessarily a dose high enough to prevent pain or inflammation, but they, it is enough to inhibit that platelet function. But then the opposite of that is, of course, if you bleed a lot, if you have an opportunity to bleed somewhere, you're probably not going to, you know, if you're on a lot of aspirin, you're probably not going to stop it very well. Uh, a lot of people swear by BC powder. That's one that a lot of older individuals just eat that. That can cause a lot of inflammation in your stomach, so be careful with that. Uh, so think about the reasons why you're taking it. Take it appropriately. And then if you're having to take pain medication longer uh, than, uh, you know, a few days, you really want to you really want to go to your physician and say, hey, what's going on with me to cause all this pain? Uh, there are lots of other classes of um of uh, medications to treat pain, though, that aren't in those those traditional uh, classes. And it's mainly for, for long-term pain. So things like uh, Neurontin or Lyrica uh, or Cymbalta, uh, there's a lot of different categories of, of medications that can be used to treat pain. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things listen to Fix It 101 podcast everywhere. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning on a beautiful, clear, a little bit chilly morning here in Mississippi. I hope you're having a great day today. Southern Remedy is the program where you can call in with any kind of healthcare question that you might have. So if you haven't listened to us before, we welcome you to the program. It's a great way to get your question asked but also to share that information with others in our listening area. And I think that's one of the best things about our program is on Wednesdays on the original Southern Remedy Hour, we really don't uh, have thematic uh, content that we plan out. We really just listen to what you have to say and uh, try to answer those questions. So with that, uh, the number to call is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. We're going to go to Jackie in Jackson. Good morning, Jackie. Thank you for uh, calling this morning. What's your question? Good morning. Uh, I'm calling because my husband uh, has had back surgery about three or four uh-huh. years ago. And uh, since then, he's had neuropathy in his feet. It started okay. with nothing. It started with numbness and tingling, and, and is now graduated to severe foot pain that wakes him up at night. He cannot take gabapentin or Lyrica um, because he has a bad reaction with those drugs. Can you recommend anything else that's prescribed for that or something, a supplement or a rub or something that can help him with it? Yeah, there's a couple of things with pain like that. And unfortunately, with any kind of back pain, whether you have surgery or not, sometimes that can be a complication, particularly if whatever is inflamed in the back area is pressing on those nerves that go down the legs. And unfortunately for a lot of people, uh, that persists even after surgery. Uh, it is a neuropathic pain, meaning it's, it's it really just that pressure on the nerves and, uh, and it can be caused a long way from where they experience pain. So you can have it in your feet or your lower extremities. And sometimes it's not just pain either. It's weakness uh, that can do that. Now, you mentioned two of the medications that I, I had alluded to earlier, gabapentin and Lyrica. These are uh, sort of uh, derivatives of seizure-like medications. They do have some side effects, sleepiness being the biggest one, but there are some other cognitive uh, side effects that some people have with them. Uh, to, and specifically, those were developed uh, to, to treat neuropathic pain. There are a couple of other things that can be done. There's a medication called uh, Cymbalta, which was originally developed as an antidepressant and anti-anxiety medication. But what they found is it worked really well with chronic pain in individuals. So uh, Deloxetine is another name for it. So it's uh, it's it's frequently prescribed, and uh, I have a lot, a lot of patients on this uh, either once or twice a day, and they've gotten some really good responses to it from chronic pain. It, it, you may want to, and that's a prescription medication. There are mm-hmm. some uh, really from the neuro, neuropathic type pain as opposed to like a joint type pain. There's not a whole lot of stuff that you can put on the outside of the body, like, like some of the lidocaine uh, creams or other things, you know, that uh, there are patches. Um, but um, I would, if you haven't already, I would be seeing a pain management specialist, particularly since you've already had surgery, because there mm-hmm. may be some other things that they can do around those nerves to help uh, either decrease inflammation around them. Sometimes injections uh, can help uh, long term. You can have, you know, an injection every three to six months, and that might help. Um, 
but I'd get to somebody, usually this is, this is somebody who has a pain medicine uh, boarded training. So they'll, they'll have that special training uh, in pain medicine. And uh, they would be skilled not just in the, the procedural part of it with injections or, or other procedures, but also those medications. But if, if he were seeing me in clinic, I would sure consider Cymbalta at this point if he hadn't already, uh, and then to refer him to pain management. All right. Well, thank you very much for the information. All right, Jackie. Good luck to you and your husband. Thank you for calling. Let's go to uh, David from Philadelphia. Good morning, David. What's your question this morning? Uh, yes, I was wondering, this uh, new medicine that came out with uh, sedimetaprin or, or something else in it, uh, isn't that going to be a prescriptive type of uh, medicine? Um, I'm not sure exactly. I'm not sure I'm 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 hearing what that medication you're asking about is. Now it sounded like acetaminophen. Yes. So acetaminophen is okay. So that's Tylenol, um, and it's not necessarily a prescription. Sometimes if it's combined with something else, it can be something that you'd have to get a prescription for. For instance, if it has a narcotic type uh, medication like oxycodone or or codeine. Um, that is in combination sometimes, but if it's a prescription, it's not for the acetaminophen part. It's really for the, the, the other parts, uh, cause you can get that over the counter without any problem. Okay. The reason why I ask is, uh, these people who take drugs, they have a field day for those, for that type of medicine. That's the reason why I was just asking. It's, it's, it's yeah, good that and you, you have. Yeah. You know, and we've changed the way our recommendations because of the potential for um, addiction, actually, in pain medications, even if you're just taking it for a legitimate reason, is fairly high, which is why we don't prescribe a lot of, of narcotics, codeine, oxycodone, Norco, those kinds of things. You know, if you have surgery, usually about three to five days is about all you would need. And then you can transition to other pain medications or maybe even, you know, not any medication at all at that point, depending on the surgery. So uh, you're right. A lot of people have, as you said, a field day with with a lot of those. And, um, you know, if it, I've had a, just one minor surgery and didn't have to take much of anything with it. Um, you know, I, you definitely don't want to get in a position where because of the abuse potential with a lot of these medications, you don't want to, you know, get hooked on them for life if, if you get and if you ask people you know does it really help with the pain they'll tell you a lot of them no it really doesn't uh it, and that's something else to think about if you're taking a main pain medication and it's not really helping at all stop taking it tell your physician or whoever if it's a you know if it's a prescription medication hey this is not really working i don't feel any different so you, you don't need to keep taking it if it's not doing much for you but acetaminophen by itself is tylenol that's an over-the-counter medication. Well, that's, that's All good. Right. Thank you, sir. All right, David. Thank you for calling. Uh, we're going to go to the opposite side of the state, I believe. We're going to go to Sue from Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. How are you this morning? Good morning. How are you? <laughs> good to talk. Good. I want to ask you a question. I have a, I'm a diabetic, and I have a sore toe, and every time I go in to see the doctor, I have to remind him to look at my toe, you know. I'm just wondering, the old doctors I trained under, you know, you, you go in there and they would do the otoscope and they'd look in your ears and they'd look down your throat and they'd palpate your abdomen. And 
but doctors don't do that anymore, do they? Yeah, some of those things that that were done, uh, you know, I used to teach a, uh, I used to 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 help teach in a physical diagnosis class called Introduction to Clinical Medicine. So this was for second year med students, and the whole the biggest goal of that course was to teach them how to take a history. In other words, to hear what's going on with the patient, put that in a cognitive framework, and try to come up with what was going on, and then also to teach them the skills of physical diagnosis. So doing all those different physical exam skills and then combining that with the history and then knowing what to do. Uh, I had a lot of fun doing that. And uh, it's interesting, you know, when you talk about old doctors and what they would do, they didn't have a lot of other stuff to do. They didn't have a lot of the imaging studies. They didn't have, you know, a lot of the tests. You had to rely on a good history and a physical exam and they became really, really good at doing those kinds of things. And I do, I think what you're alluding to is probably right, that most doctors these days aren't as good as a whole. There are certainly great doctors out there that continue to do this and that are young. Um, but a lot of them lean more on those, those non-physical exam skills. Now, some of them can be very useful. You mentioned look at your ears. Now, if you're not having any problems in your ear, you may not need to look there. Uh, you mentioned abdominal exam, too. It's interesting, you know, doing an abdominal exam on everybody is, is turns out it's not really that effective in picking up on anything unless they have some symptoms or they have some risk factors. For instance, one of the things that we can diagnose from an abdominal examination is an aortic aneurysm. So this is a widening of the aortic artery in your abdomen. And you can you can diagnose that by by physical exam and then move on to some other tests to look at it. However, uh, you know that would be somebody who either has a family history of it or smoking history, other cardiovascular disease. Those are the people that you definitely want to do that in. Um, so I think you got you know these days Sue, you got to just uh, you got to marry that old school physical exams that you master over time by doing over and over again. I used to tell medical students, it takes you about a hundred times doing something on a normal person to know what's normal. And then you can start to appreciate the abnormal things. And sometimes longer than that, any kind of, you know, skill development, whether you're playing a sport or you're flying an airplane, it's about 10,000 hours to acquire those, those skills. So, uh, same thing with medicine. Um, so it does, you know, you, I, I would particularly, as you mentioned, the sore toe that you have as a diabetic. If you continue to have that, I would want to look at your feet or know that somebody else is doing that. Some physicians, you know, will, will have you go to a podiatrist, and that's fine, particularly somebody who has experience with, you know, looking at, uh, at diabetic feet and what, to, uh, what kind of things to be concerned about, what kind of things to intervene on. So, um, I think that's, you know, that's, that's brings up some good points about physical diagnosis and how important it is. So thank you for that question, Sue, and uh, uh, keep uh, pressing your physician to look at your feet. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy.
Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio. Or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy Stewart with you, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Answering your questions today, got some good ones across the board. The number to call if you have a question is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Jennifer in Mobile. Good morning, Jennifer. Thank you for calling. Good morning, sir. Thank you so much for accepting my call. I love your program. Um, I'm calling today because I'm a new diabetic. And I'm a type 1 diabetic, um, and I recently got a Dexcom um, machine, which I I really love. But I've since noticed um, when I eat, I have to take one unit of insulin for five grams of carbs. So let's say my blood sugar is like 125, and I take maybe nine units of insulin. I've noticed that my – and I mean, it, you know – it, it won't be rice or potatoes or anything like that. But I've noticed that my um, blood sugar will go up into like, to like maybe 200, 225. And then, you know, of course, it'll go back down. But I'm wondering, is it supposed to do that? Like go up that high before it decreases? Is that normal or am I not taking enough insulin? Yeah, so so that is sort of the normal way. If you map that out on how a normal person's glucose is, who is producing insulin, for you've already it's very clear to me you you are already learning a lot about um, about your uh, about diabetes, particularly type one diabetes. So to remind everybody else out there who may not know, so type one diabetes is a lot different, or a little bit different than type two diabetes. Type two is the more common form. Uh, where you're making enough insulin, it's just not working appropriately to get that blood sugar into your cells, so your blood sugar is high. With type 1, your pancreas is not making enough insulin to do that job. So the way you treat it is with insulin. You can't take these other medications uh, that are used in type 2 diabetics, do not work in a type 1 diabetic. So uh, you're doing it, you know, the more fine-tuned you can get with it as you're doing is counting carbs, knowing how much you're going to eat and the types of foods that you're going to eat, and then administering the insulin right before that meal to cover you. um, That's the appropriate thing to do. But anybody, when they eat a meal or any kind of food, immediately your blood sugar is going to go up. Your body's going to sense that at the pancreas. The pancreas is going to pump out enough insulin to get that blood sugar down within a normal range. Um, and then you have other, uh, other hormones that help regulate it from the other side. So, yes, the, the, the answer to your question is, yeah, you're going to see it go up. 
Uh, and you may want to, you know, that's that's okay. I mean, even if it goes up to the, you know, 120s or even the 200, just for a short period of time. Now, something that you can do to modulate that is the types of food that you eat. So I'm not sure if you have talked to a dietitian um, about the types of carbohydrates. Counting carbs is great, mm-hmm. and it is an extremely useful tool. But there's also, uh, you know, a glycemic index, which is a way of looking yeah. at the types of, of uh, and you already know about that. So uh, the type of carbohydrates. So if you eat foods that have a, a uh, you know, a lower glycemic index, you're not going to see that initial spike as much. It's still going to go up, but it's going to take it a little bit longer to go up and it's going to be much smoother and easier for you to take uh, that insulin. Um, but I, you, you know, this is, this, I know this is fairly new to you, but I would just talk to your endocrinologist or your physician, whoever sort of coordinating that they're going to be able to give you some tools to fine tune that by looking both at your A1C, which is the average blood sugar over three months and at your log of glucoses using your glucometer, um, of, of what that is looking like throughout the day, but it will be determined by, what you eat and activity level. So if you're doing a lot more, if you're doing a lot more exercise, you're not going to require as much insulin in those situations. Um, so that's something else to, to keep in mind. If you get sick, you may require more insulin. There's a lot of things that sort of modulate that uh, over time. But it sounds like you're doing a pretty good job of monitoring it. But that's okay if it goes up, you know, initially like that. I mean, if it's going up to 300, I'd probably call your physician and say, you know, this is way too high. What's going on here? And it, it's probably related either the, to the amount and type of food that you're eating versus what sort of your basal insulin is uh, uh, on board at that point. Okay, because I've been trying to be conscious. And it, it's so weird once you get a Dexcom because before you just, you know, manually take your blood sugar and it's like, okay, it's low, and then you eat, and then you check it again before you eat. But with the Dexcom, you're always looking at it, looking at how your blood sugar is fluctuating. So I was just like, oh, my God, do I need to be taking more insulin? When it hits in the 200 range, should I add more insulin to bring it back down? Is this normal? So it's just a new window having this this Dexcom, because you would never know really how much your blood sugar spikes after you eat unless you're, you know, like constantly checking it, which you kind of don't do unless you're going to eat. So I was just like, oh, is is something wrong? Because I'm just addicted to the Dexcom now. It's like on my phone. So it's like every few (laughs) minutes it's like, oh, my God, okay, the blood sugar is 170. Okay, it's like 130. Oh, my God, 200. You know, like what's happening? So (laughs) thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. And keep in mind, too, that that you're trying to get to a point where you can live your life. You're going to have to make some modifications for the rest of your life. But, you know, within reason, you need to not just be looking at that. Same thing for my patients with hypertension. Uh, You know, sometimes they can live and breathe by that blood pressure cuff. And it's no way to live. You need to, you know, monitor things. But you got to be uh, have enough freedom to know that sometimes it's going to be a little bit out of range. And then to know what to do to get it down, and and uh, to, that that'll come with time. Though it sounds like you were well on your way to doing well with this uh, new diagnosis. I'm trying. This is, uh, I, if I if, do, you have time for one more question for me? Is oh, sure, keto go ahead. really yeah. good for diabetics? 
because I've been trying to like make the keto bread and keto um, cakes to as a way to just have like less carbs. But then I was reading something the other day that was saying that keto isn't healthy for diabetics. What's your opinion? Yeah, for type, two, and, and again, it's uh, type 2 and type 1 are a little bit different there. So for type 2, it can be a, uh, you know, healthy diet to to sort of, mo- and you, all those, I would say, with any kind of diabetes, you need to be monitored on that by your physician. I personally am not a big fan of keto with type 1 diabetes, um, that, you know, unless there's there's a legitimate reason for doing that. You can cut your carbs quite a bit, but you're going to need some carbs to live. It's not necessarily, you know, if you're eating a ton of carbs, and I would probably at least just cut back on that. But if not, you can modify that a little bit. But I would, I would still keep in touch with your physician about that to make sure you're getting enough carbs, because uh, you can, you can run into some long-term health effects with a keto diet. It's not something that, to me, it's not something that's sustainable over time. Uh, it's really about that balance of the appropriate amount of insulin if you're a type 1 diabetic, uh, the appropriate amount of insulin with the appropriate amount of carbs. Okay. Well, thank you so much. God bless you all. Bye-bye. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. You take care. Uh, We're going to go to Will in Holcomb, Mississippi. Good morning, Will. Good morning. I I had had to look up um, Holcomb. I, I I oh, think it's, it's right outside of Grenada. Is that right? Beautiful. Yes, it's uh, right at the edge of the corner of the Delta, meeting the Tom Bigby Black Hills. There we go. It's always good to to put a pin in it, so to speak. I love it. <laughs> Real country. What's your question this morning, Will? I was wondering if you could touch on uh, family shared psychosis, like your foyer doigt and foyer toit and mass hysteria and all that. If you could just touch on that for me. Especially Ooh, we're in, we're family in, shared psychosis. Yeah, so so these are these are specific types of psychosis that uh, that require. Uh, I would say, if I had somebody that came in and asked this question, I'd say you need a psychiatrist uh, to uh, you know to fully make sure that you're getting all the type of uh, care that you need. Um, unfortunately, we don't always have psychiatrists that are available, mm-hmm. um, but I would I would. You know, even my, myself, I do some for a friend asking for a friend, of course. Oh, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> uh, you know, it's uh, but I would uh, I would I would get a referral to a psychiatrist that particularly oh, that, that treats that and um, like and, and let them sort of drive, like, so to speak. So what yeah, about, probably so. Whole, like, I don't cause, I don't because this this family that I'm talking about, they have like shared telepathy and like can communicate with each other without saying a word. It's really freaky. Yeah. Yeah. It's and, and there's a lot of theories behind that. Um, I am not up to date on any of that. That's that's getting in the in the weeds of really subspecialized in the weeds and six. I know it. But I, I would I would definitely get, see a psych, uh, a uh, not a psychologist, but a psychiatrist about I that. Will and then also I will tell them to, and, and, I will tell them to go. Sure. And then, you know, if they think they want to bring in the family at that point, they can. Uh, but uh, communication, you know, we think it's it's mostly words that we say and that we yeah. transmit back and forth. It's actually not. Um, so there are many different ways. Vibrations and sometimes. Tone. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it can be very subtle. And although they may not be true telepathy, 
there may be some body language and there may be some intonations in the way that people are communicating to do that. So uh, I would I would get a referral to see a psychiatrist for them. And uh, that's that that would be my suggestion. All right. Thank you, Will. Uh, that was a tough one there. We're going to go back down to Mobile. Catherine in Mobile. Good morning, Catherine. Thank you for calling. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for taking the call. I just had a quick question in regards to migraines. Um, sure. I have been having migraines um, for a couple of years now. I recently learned that they're hereditary. So, um, you know, shout out to my parents. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> usually my migraines will last about three days straight like it may um they persist for about three days and i've been doing some research and i see that uh estrogen like a decrease in that sometimes can cause that and um the migraines will occur after um like my menstrual cycle sometimes before a few days before or a few days after um, but other times is that's not the case and so i was wondering if you could just elaborate on migraines and um just, you know, give your words of wisdom. Yeah, sure. Migraines are a common form of headaches. Um, as you mentioned, they can be hereditary. Um, they can, uh, you know, they can be, uh, you know, if you talk to enough people, some people just don't know and they find out a little bit later. Yeah, they do tend to be, you can have male and female equal, you know, both males and females can have migraines. A lot of times they'll be more common in female patients and in, in females in the family, though, and they can be modulated by a number of things. Now, these are these are vascular neurovascular headaches, meaning that it has to do with both the arteries and the nerves in the, in the brain itself inside the head. So it's not like a tension headache, which is more of muscle tension and overuse. If you've had, you know, like myself, sometimes imperfect uh, posture while I'm at the computer or. Uh, in the exam room all day. So that, you know, the, all those kinds of things can be different types of headaches. You can have cluster headaches. You can have some other forms of headaches, but migraines are fairly common. They usually uh, have a certain pattern for the individual. In other words, they will know that the migraine is coming on before they actually have it. It tends to be sort of unilateral on one side of their head. And some of the things that are sort of warning signs, some people have certain smells that they smell. Some people would see certain lights or they might mm -hmm. have something that, uh, you know, that they are like, I'm about to have a migraine. And then mm -hmm. they usually last anywhere from, you know, minutes to hours, sometimes even days. Um, and they typically, the less stimulation that you have, in other words, that's the whole reason where people are like, well, I want to just go lay down and get in a dark room. Uh, that's, that's one of the ways that you can treat it is by sort of withdrawing yourself from that. Um, now the triggers, um, you know, it can be very elusive sometimes. Uh, I usually tell people with migraines, go ahead and start writing these down. So just get a notebook or keep a keep piece of paper with you and just keep a note about when you have a migraine, what happened? Maybe it was certain foods that you ate. Maybe it's a certain type of the time of the day. Maybe it's it's like you mentioned around your menstrual cycle because of those changes in hormones uh, like estrogen during that time. So that's a that can be another trigger. Um, so most people will know what their triggers are if they write them down like that and start to see some patterns. And then you can sort of know what to do as far as treatment. 
you know, one of the most common things you can do is to take, you know, Tylenol or ibuprofen um, to help stop it. It does not help to, pr- to prolong that. In other words, if you know that you're having a migraine headache that's pretty typical for yourself and you delay that an hour, you're going to have a whole lot harder time controlling that migraine pain if you wait. So when you first feel it coming on, a lot of people are controlled with that. Some people take certain migraine-specific medications to help prevent them from having a migraine. And then if you have them enough, a lot of people will take medications to help prevent them, even if, you know, like you would take every day. Uh, there are some blood pressure medications, older ones, beta blockers that have been used in lower doses. There's a lot of other medications that have been used. Topamax is one. There's others that, that you can take on a daily basis um, and to, to help prevent them. And then in some severe you know, cases, a lot of people would have to do other treatments for it. Uh, another one that is in younger individuals that's, that's sometimes effective is taking riboflavin. So this is a B vitamin. Uh, that you can take every day. You can't really overdose on it. Uh, it basically is eliminated in the urine. Um, but riboflavin can be taken, and uh, and sometimes it can prevent certain headaches. But the headache diary is probably one of the more important things is to know what the triggers are. Try to avoid them if you can. If you're having you know, migraines that are interfering with your work or your daily life, uh, extensively you probably should not just take a pain medication just when you have them but something to help prevent it. And once you get beyond that stage, that's the point where you probably need to see a neurologist or somebody who specializes in migraine treatment. Okay. Yes, sir. I thank you for that. And one last question. Do you know the natural remedies or anything that um, can be done to treat it in addition to, um, because I do take Excedrin when I feel it. Mm -hmm. And so for those three days, I will take the minimal amount. But is there anything else that can be done um, in addition to that? Yeah, so the riboflavin uh, that I mentioned is one thing. And this is going to sound overly simple, but it is important. So proper hydration is very important. So making sure that you're you're getting enough water daily, even okay. if you're not, you know, just overly dehydrated. But, it, uh, you know, but I, I would probably keep some water with me. Uh, if you can, and then take some sips on that throughout the day to make sure you're getting enough hydration. And then sleep is another one. So if you have sleep deprivation of any kind, uh, you, you can that, can that can be a migraine trigger. So the sleep, the adequate hydration, and then maybe adding that riboflavin would be some, some natural ways that you could try to, to uh, prevent that. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, and have a great day. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. 
podcast can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions and hearing some comments about all kinds of different good health care issues. Again, if you miss something in the program and want to go back and listen to it, you can go to mpbonline.org and just search for Southern Remedy. Now, a lot of people have to come in and out, sometimes just catch portions of the program, but you can go there and, uh, and see uh, the conversa- hear the conversations that we had uh, on different things. Uh, also, we do respond to your emails directly, but we also, uh, if you give us permission, we like to share those as, um, as they um, you know, come up. Uh, the email address to send those to us is remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Sherry in Ocean Springs. Good morning, Sherry. Hi, how you doing? Good. How are you? Wound in my okay. right knee, but it's been there for like okay. two and a half months. It's still draining. So everybody's all up in arms about that. But in addition to that, about a month ago, I managed to get a pinched nerve in the same leg. No one will address that. I am in agonizing pain, level eight through ten. What can I do? Uh, I would. I. It sounds like you need to see somebody else to sort of assess that. Um, so two different issues. I don't know that these are necessarily connected. I can't just on the limited information that that I have. I don't, you know, can't make those. Now, uh, you know, a wound that doesn't heal for a long time could be a, a, uh, a lot of different things. Uh, infection can be one of them, but there are other things, too, that it needs to be looked at by, uh, you know, it, it, it's sort of, you know, who do you go to first? Sometimes a dermatologist is a... Go ahead. Everybody's looking at that. That's well. I'm on my way to Archer's right now to have somebody else look at it over there. But it's a pinch nerve. There you I'm go. Is the um, it, have they identified a particular nerve that is causing that pain? No, nobody wants to address it. They're all worried about me losing my leg with this open wound. I, I got you. Okay, so they're sort of focused on that. Uh, that you know, unfortunately, that can be a problem. Sometimes uh, you know, uh, physicians will get sort of uh, targeted on on one thing or the other so you yeah i would just tell them hey look i am miserable i know my knee looks bad but um can i see somebody else about that you may have to see somebody else that totally does not do anything with the wound but just for the back and uh, if you haven't seen a pain medicine uh you know a pain specialist that's who i would go to um because they can sort of do some further tests you may need an, even an MRI to help localize that. Sometimes they can localize it by uh, what they do with injections to try to see if they can give you some relief. But pain specialist, if nobody else is is addressing it, would be the person that I would I would go to. And you can you know it may have to be a separate person from whoever is looking at that open wound on your knee. Um, but sometimes that's you know if 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 they're paying attention to one thing, it's a little bit hard to get them to to um, uh, get somebody to look at the other. So that's that's sort of the direction I would go in for that. 
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app.